Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be edifying and enjoyable for all listeners, uh, but especially equipping for pastors and teachers working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Aubrey Buster. Aubrey, this is her second time to be on the show. She teaches Old Testament at Wheaton College. She's an expert in the Psalms, so it's been so great to bring her onto the show as we've been focusing in on the Psalms this year. This week, we're looking at Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the lectionary selection is an excerpt starting in verse 24, although we went ahead and read the whole Psalm and put it in context just to respect the the fullness of this psalm. So we're looking at Psalm 104 today. So if you want to turn there, go ahead, but don't worry. I will read it for you if you're listening to this while you're doing dishes or taking a walk or whatnot. Now, as you're listening to the show, if you enjoy it, um, be sure to just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice. You can pass this on to others so they can enjoy it as well. That's the best way to get the word out about the show is through word of mouth that way. And uh, if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text you'll see some ways to support the show there. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aubrey. All right, Psalm 104, whole thing, monster, go for it. Let my whole being bless the Lord. Lord, my God, how fantastic you are. You are clothed in glory and grandeur. You wear light like a robe. You open the skies like a curtain. You build your lofty house on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot going around on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers. You make fire and flame your ministers. You established the earth on its foundations so that it will never, ever fall. You covered it with the watery deep like a piece of clothing. The waters were higher than the mountains, but at your rebuke, they ran away. They fled in fear at the sound of your thunder. They flowed over the mountains, streaming down the valleys to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, so they'll never again cover the earth. You put gushing springs into dry riverbeds. They flow between the mountains, providing water for every wild animal. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Overhead, the birds in the sky make their home, chirping loudly in the trees. From your lofty house, you water the mountains. The earth is filled full by the fruit of what you've done. You make grass grow for cattle, You make plants for human farming in order to get food from the ground and wine, which cheers people's hearts along with oil, which makes the face shine and bread, which sustains the human heart. The Lord's trees are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon, which God planted, where the birds make their nests, where the stork has a home in the cypresses. The high mountains belong to the mountain goats. The ridges are the refuge of badgers. God made the moon for the seasons and the sun too, 
which knows when to set. You bring on the darkness and it is night when every forest animal prowls. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Then people go off to their work to do their work until evening. Lord, you have done so many things. You made them all so wisely. The earth is full of your creations. And then there's the sea, wide and deep, with its countless creatures, living things both small and large. There go the ships on it, and Leviathan, which you made, plays in it. All your creations wait for you to give them their food on time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled completely full. But when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you let loose your breath, they are created, and you make the surface of the ground brand new again. Let the Lord's glory last forever. Let the Lord rejoice in all he has made. He has only to look at the earth and it shakes. God just touches the mountains and they erupt in smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I'm still alive. Let my praise be pleasing to him. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Let sinners be wiped clean from the earth. Let the wicked be no more, but let my whole being bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Mm-hmm. Let us say a word of prayer and then continue to study this word. Father, we give you thanks for all that you have made, for all that you have done, and for the things that you are still about to do. And we ask that your breath, your wind, your spirit would be let loose upon us as we study Psalm 104. May all those who listen to our conversation not merely hear words, but be moved by your spirit to encounter the truth of your word. We ask this all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so where do you want to start? It's a monster it of is. a psalm, but in, in the best way, in the best sense of the word monster. Right, right, The right. Leviathan, no, uh, <laughs> the monster, no. Well, yes. But uh, yeah, where do you want to start? What do you notice here? What piques your interest? Where do you want to, where do you want to start our conversation? Yeah, there are several things. But the first thing, of course, that we notice is that this is one of the Psalms that retells the story of creation. There are several. I talk a lot about my students about the creation narratives in the Old Testament. And of course, they're familiar with the one in Genesis 1 and 2, or the ones in Genesis 1 and 2, but less familiar with these other traditions that also tell the story of creation. Each tradition celebrates different aspects of what God has done in this ordering process. And I think Psalm 104 has got to be one of the most celebratory 
of the act of creation. You can see echoes of maybe the Genesis 1 narrative of creation in the way that it's ordered. It does roughly follow that outline, moving from the heavens to the earth, the division of the heavenly waters from the earthly waters, the emergence of land and the boundary marking that that requires to put water in its proper place so that it becomes a life-giving source rather than the death giving force that it is if it's out of control. And then you see birds, fish, created animals, humans. So you do see some echoes perhaps of what goes on in Genesis 1. And then of course, the connection in Genesis 2 between God's life-giving breath, that this is what animates humans from being just dust, from being just ground, uh, afar or adama into being humans, Adam filled with the breath of God. So we see echoes of those themes, but it's reordered in order to emphasize another truth about God's creative activity. Yes, you say echoes, but reordered. Are are there some oddities in the order that don't kind of map on to Genesis 1 naturally? And where would those be? I mean, well, we don't get, um, and this is what makes me think, I don't think Psalm 104 is a rereading of Genesis 1 and 2. It seems to maybe be an independent tradition. Absolutely. Absolutely. But probably connected to what people were generally thinking about tradition. We forget that, of course, when people were writing these texts, they probably weren't sitting there with Genesis open thinking, how do I, you know, echo this one creation tradition? They probably had lots of traditions about how God related to the created order. They talked about this. They thought about it. They sung about it. They celebrated it in worship in the temple. And so it would have produced lots of worshipful reflections on God as the source of all life. And so it's possible that the author of this psalm knew something related to Genesis 1, but it's equally possible that seven-day order of creation, the idea of creation as a marking of boundaries, as a separation of waters, uh, is something that was just in the cultural air of of ancient Israel. In the water, as it were. In the waters, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I knew that would get a laugh from you. (laughs) That's my kind of humor. That's my kind of humor. Right up your alley. (laughs) Yeah, but the sequence is pretty close. It is pretty close. Right. Right? So the fish, the fish are kind of out of place. It goes from birds to animals. The plants grow in multiple areas. It's almost as though poetically, the psalmist has a general order in mind, but is almost getting distracted by the wonder of creation. As you just kind of look around. As you just kind of look around, which is why I love um, I love translations. This EB has lots of exclamation points in it, and I think that captures the mood of this psalm. Yeah, the bias in English style against the exclamation point is irritating to me. It is. It, it's inappropriate in the Psalter. It's inappropriate, especially in this particular psalm. Yeah, and I noticed there was a lot of... I, I realized a few verses in, I'm like, oh, she's doing CEB, isn't she? And went and looked it up. I didn't have it. <laughs> And I was like, because I didn't recognize it at first. And I was like, what is that? Because I have all the, you know, I got like, shocker, I've got like six translations out here around my table. And and it wasn't any of those. And I'm like, okay, what is that? And yeah, I I did. I noticed those exclamation points too. And one of the choices that the CEB makes that's really interesting, you could debate the merits of it, but it's interesting, is that probably the most famous line of Psalm 104, which is bless the Lord, O my soul, or praise the Lord, O my soul, isn't preserved in that form in the CEB. Instead, they say, let my whole being bless the Lord. This is a key issue that I think ties into our lectionary passage, this term, 
nefesh, often translated as soul. The problem is, at least in Western culture, where ideas of the soul come largely from the Greco-Roman context, we often picture the soul as the disembodied aspect of our body, of ourselves, the part that will survive the mortal flesh after death and might eventually float off into heaven, this kind of thing. Whereas the nefesh in Hebrew thought is almost the opposite of this. The nefesh is that which is intimately connected to our bodily needs. And so I think it makes a big difference if you begin Psalm 104 with a command to the disembodied soul to bless the Lord, or if it's a command to the needy embodied person who in fact needs all of these things that are being celebrated that God creates and provides in the psalm. There are cons to the translation because it takes away that really iconic line, which is so beautiful, but there are some benefits to the translation as it suggests to us to think more about ourselves as as embodied needy beings. Yeah, and so and then it plays right into this. So if if that's the most famous line from the psalm, which appears in some other psalms as well, including the one right before, then the verse that probably is the reason for its selection in the lectionary for this particular day is this reference to sending forth your spirit, which CB chooses to go with breath. So in both cases, we're kind of moving the language in a more, you know, concrete bodily direction. Yeah. And like you say, the pros and cons that come with that. So I think it'd be good to, I mean, and again, if, if soul being animating principle, self <laughs> throat, all the above work for Nefesh, right? Which is why the connection with spirit then really, Ruach really matters in verse 30, right? I would differentiate between nefesh and ruach. Ruach is the animating force. Nefesh is the needy self. So when nefesh is used to describe a body, each of the Hebrew terms for the self often relate both to a body part and to an aspect of the human self. Just the same thing in English, right? We talk about loving with our heart. If we're like, though they're thinking with their stomach, that means we're thinking with our appetites. If you're thinking with your heart, it's your emotions. If you're going with your gut, it's intuition. So we connect all these aspects of the human self to some area of our body in a non-biological sense, right? There's no reason that the heart or the stomach should be connected to these kinds of things. In Hebrew, the nefesh is most connected to the throat, which is the place where everything you need is taken into the body. It's the place that you breathe. It's the place that you eat and your drink. Your nefesh is what gets hungry and thirsty and lacks breath. And so the ruach, the spirit of God, is what animates the nefesh. And so what I love about the CEB's translation is I think ruach can be translated either breath or spirit, but it's important that in verse 29 and in verse 30, the word is the same. It's ruach. So here it says, but when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, that's ruach. When you take away their spirit, they die. And I think it's a word for expire. Uh, there's different words for, for die in Hebrew. So that's a nice breath word. They breathe their last, so to speak, and return to dust. But when you let loose your ruach, your spirit or breath, they are created. So using the same word for verse 29 and 30 captures this reliance, this interdependence of the human breath on divine breath. That is, humans don't have their own breath. What I'm breathing right now is, according to the anthropology of the Old Testament, the breath of God, because it's life-giving and animating. Yeah, and, and even, I mean, even abstracted from the theological context, I mean, breath is not a private 
possession, right? Yes. I can say, I can say my, I can talk about my throat. Yes. Um, and there's a difference between my throat and your throat. Yours is right. in, is in right. you and mine's in me, but the breath we breathe is shared, right? That's a great so, line. Yeah. That's a great line. Breath is not a private possession and ultimately it's versus God. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I concur with you pretty strongly. I mean, one of my translations that I have out here is ESV and they do choose in 29 to say, take away their breath. And then verse 30, when you send forth your spirit. And I think that's just a, like you said, I mean, I, I'd be inclined, I think today to, to go with breath, but maybe capitalize at both times or do something to kind of draw attention to it. Yes. And of course they have a footnote that says, or breath, which helps, but I mean, come on, you don't read the footnotes as you read it, Right. right? That's a second step. However, this is the Psalm. The selection here is set aside for Pentecost. So there's a reason to say spirit because yeah. of the associations, but then there's something lost in the, in the process there. But, but you could say in verse 29, when you take away their spirit, because according to the yeah. most robust anthropology of the old Testament, your breath is given by God. It's breathed by God into you. And that's what makes you a living creature. Same thing with the animals. And then Pentecost is just, a not just, just is the wrong word for Pentecost. Pentecost is a recreation, a recreation, a re-giving of the divine spirit as happened at creation. Yeah. And then that language of animation is so helpful because yeah. something is being animated there. So, I mean, the spirit of Pentecost is associated with this you know, equipping to speak the word, but that's an action that's being empowered, equipped, enabled, animated by this recreating spirit. And spirit, of course, breath, it's the same word, is intimately connected to speech. Yeah. In the Old Testament, the spirit of God, the breath of God comes upon prophets and they speak with their breath, divine words. And then in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, who is also the agent of Jesus's resurrection, right? The one who not only gives life to living bodies, but life to dead bodies is also one that empowers speech. This is all intimately connected to this central organizing concept of life-giving breath. Yeah. And so it's interesting that in the Genesis narratives, stories, the language of breath is Linked to the to the human, yes, right, yes, yes. The the breathing into the nostrils and all that, and is not. I mean, not that it's not related to the rest of the animals, but it's not emphasized, right? Well, let's see. Well, let's take a look live right here on. Well, it's not live. It's live to tape. <laughs> so it's formed out of the ground. That's that breath is different, right? But I was thinking here in one hundred and four, it is just talking about all creatures. It's not. Yes. And and I think it'll be important because many of your readers will know that the word Ruach and Neshima is different in Genesis 2. And that's important to recognize, but the concepts are linked in the Old Testament. So right. it's very likely that these terms are indicating the same, the same or a similar concept. And while in Genesis 2, the animals don't receive this divine breath, in other texts in the Old Testament, they are described as being energized by that same divine spirit. Including this one, 104 is Including not, 104. 104 is one of not human-focused exactly, or human-centered. Exactly. Yeah. A robust anthropology of the Old Testament suggests that the life that we have, that all creation is filled with the divine spirit. 
not in any kind of pantheistic sense. It's not that creation is the divine spirit, but that any living thing receives its life from God and is, is only sustained by, by that divine breath. Yeah. And so that's such a huge, hugely important background to keep in mind when one does turn at whatever point one would turn to it, to this, to this Pentecost narrative that obviously is centered on speech and on human beings, that story, but doesn't exclude this broader creational context, right? Right, right. Well, let's take a quick break and uh, come back and explore it some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we're looking at Psalm 104. It's a long text. We read the whole thing. I won't reread the whole thing, but let me let me just do a 24 through 34, which is the selection in the lectionary, just to kind of get that in front of our eyes again or in our ears. Um, this is from the RSV, just not the RSV, NRSV, just for what it's worth to mix it up. So here it goes. O Lord, how, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you have formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. And then... The last line, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And of course, you know, the word of the Lord skipping, let sinners be consumed from the earth. Although that's really important, but you know, alas, Um, (laughs) (laughs) that also is taking place uh, in the midst of it all. So, yeah. So, I mean, the parallel there, we don't have to camp on this too long, but I was struck by, since we did talk about breath quite a bit, that there's some clever little parallelism in 29 and 30. So you get, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. So first of all, you already have the these two different ways in which, or or maybe two versions of one way of God sort of removing either his face or his life-giving breath. Right. And then in 30, you get it paralleled again, but just inverted and, you know, where it's you, you send forth your spirit or breath and they're created. And then you renew the face of the ground or the face of the earth. So then you, it gets that. It's like you have, 
God's face and the earth's face. You have their breath and God's breath. I don't know. It's just super clever. I don't know if there's anything important to draw from that, but I was just really struck by that reading through it today. Yes, absolutely. And then death and creation as that as that hinge point. Um, and I think this this could be viewed as the thesis statement of this psalm, the interconnectedness, not just of God and humans, which is definitely the case, and the face includes that relational aspect. When someone's face, you know, shines upon you, which is the opposite of being hidden, that's an indication not only of presence, but favor. So there's a relational aspect to faith, to, to the face, but it's not just between God and humans. It's between God, humans, all living creatures, and the ground in this relationship of life that is all dependent on God. And that parallelism captures both in its content, but also in its form, the interconnected nature of all of those beings. Um, or I, sh- I should specify the interconnected nature of the life of creation and the ground with God. God, of course, is not dependent <laughs> on these beings, but their life source never comes from themselves. Yeah, yeah. So it is unidirectional in a certain sense, right? Although there is a sense in which, I mean, it, I don't know if it comes out in this passage, we could talk about it if we want, but there is some sense in which in his covenant, in his election of his people, at least God has kind of linked up his identity, his glory, his reputation up with his people, not as a dependence per se, but definitely throwing in his lot with us, you know? Yes. I mean, even verse 31 brings that out, right? May the glory of the Lord endure forever, as if to imply something is at stake in this. And then may the Lord rejoice in his works, right? It's not just us rejoicing in God's works, but God taking joy and taking delight in the work that he's done, which implies it's not a, that's not guaranteed. He may become dismayed. He may be displeased with at least our end of the bargain. And even the psalmist little line, I'll praise you while I'm alive. And that's another breath word, praise is what you do with the breath that God gave you. So in some sense, you're returning the breath of God back to God in praise to its rightful source. But the psalmist says, I'll do that as long as I'm alive. (laughs) That life that comes from you, God. So this is talking about an interconnected relationship between God who gives breath to the person who aims their breath back to God, its its rightful source. Yeah, what's what's the word there for as long as I'm alive or while I have my being in verse 33. It's in, in my life. I'm I'll pull up the Hebrew. Yeah. Is it be in be o Yeah. So it's in, in, in my life. Right. So interesting. The, that word Chaim for being a living creature. So it could also be translated like while I'm a living creature. And so this is, this is saying that, as long as this animating force that you're giving me is present. And this is a theme of the Psalms too. The idea that God is the God of the living. God is the God of abundance. God is the God of breath and life. And the place of the dead is not a place that God necessarily, or they're not sure that God inhabits that place. And so this connection between life and God, which of course is also the theme of Pentecost, is key to this Psalm as well. That was a clever move. They're not sure. <laughs> that, was, that was that was clever. 
yeah. No, that works though. I mean, it's because to think of to think of these psalms as sort of teaching something directly is to kind of mistake them for the kind of genre that they are. Right? It, it'd yeah. be more accurate to see them as saying, "There's no reason to think that." me being dead in the grave does you any good Lord, you know, yes, yes. as opposed to thinking, okay, let's abstract that into some sort of doctrine about divine absence or presence, you know, like that's kind of not, that's not the kind of literature we're dealing with here. Yeah. This is a very human conversation with God, God there. You can see them almost thinking through this process. Another line in a Psalm is God. Is there any praise for you in the grave? Right. If people aren't, don't have breath, you can't get praised. Therefore, preserve my life. Oh God, there's a, uh, there's a kind of human demand that is connecting God to life or almost demanding that God remains connected to life. Yeah. And that fits back then with what you were saying about, okay, so if praise is something that is going to pass through my throat, I'm going to need breath to yeah. do it. Yeah. So if you take this breath away from me, I'm not going to have the capacity to sort of give back to you this thing that is uh and even the meditation language is not completely abstract in hebrew Absolutely. right the it is it uh what is it here is it sihik i don't know how to say that you know how to pronounce hebrew you're the real scholar here help <laughs> me out but siak i guess yes yes that language of meditation am i correct in hearing verbal, that that's a, a process. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a more of a, like a murmuring or a mumbling kind of, is that the notion? So you could think of the mouth, the breath. The, so the ruach, the nefesh and the mouth as the site of both receiving from God and giving back to God appropriately. It's also no coincidence then that in the Psalms, the primary place where sin is identified when it's described are sins of the mouth. Those who say there is no God, those who speak against me with lying tongues, with mouths and teeth like lions and other vicious creatures. And so there is uh, a lot of the Psalms have this very mouth, throat, breath centered imagery as being praise songs or laments themselves that often also express uh, deep human need. Oh, that's that that's very, very helpful. Yeah, it all. Yeah. And there's the, you know, there's a lot of there's a couple references in the Psalms, right. To like cleansing the lips. Yes. Right. Exactly. As if to imply exactly. that that's the, if not the exclusive location of uncleanliness, at least the, a synecdoche, uh, a center, a center point of uncleanliness. Right. A synecdoche is a great way of putting it. The place where in the Psalms, that's not to say that this is again, not a point of doctrine, but in the Psalms, that is the focal point of sin and righteousness is, is how you speak how you speak about God and about others. It always seems so kind of out of nowhere, that moment in Isaiah six, when he's like, you know, the, the coal has to come and, you know, cleanse the lips. Yes. And of course he's prophesying. He's speaking. <laughs> he has to speak. Yeah. Right word. Yeah. Yeah. It almost anticipates the, you know, cause that story sort of presents itself as a, as a starting point. Yes. For his work as a prophet. Right. Um, right. But in many ways, it it's sort of anticipating that throughout, which again, that links us back up to this kind of Pentecost context. Absolutely. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to speak a message, to bring good news, to do all of these things by a divine spirit. 
Yeah. So are there any, I mean, obviously there's a thousand interesting things in this passage, but, but uh, before we take a break and come back for our third segment where we might explore some sermon starters, are there just any other sort of observations or interpretive questions you want to make sure that we pay attention to before we take our second break? Just thought I'd, I know that's a very unhelpful question because it's just, Hey, Aubrey, you want to say one more thing? But basically that's what I'm saying. Like, is there anything you want to slip in before we uh, focus in on, on preaching and teaching this text? Yeah. One thing that I want to bring up that you said that has stuck in my mind, and I'd like to bring it back into the conversation is the idea that life is not a private possession. It is viewed as coming from God, going back to God, being shared among all living creatures. And that this is also part of the Psalms vision of abundance this is a, a view of creation that is not marked by scarcity, how we often look at creation and our relationship to creation, but as one that because it comes from God and because God is the one who can fill you perfectly with all good things in the proper time, this means that we can view creation and celebrate all of its aspects. Even Leviathan, who, by the way, is a terrifying creature who you wouldn't want to meet when you were by yourself. We're not exactly sure what Leviathan is. Some people have suggested a dinosaur, a crocodile, or a, a hippo or something in, in, in Job, but that even Leviathan has his right place in creation. And so what would it look like? The psalm asks, what would it look like to look at creation through this viewpoint that it is filled to overflowing with the life-giving power of God? Yeah, and I think that's linked pretty strongly with the I mean, we talked about breath a lot, but but food is a big theme. You also need it. Also through the throat, that's right. Also through the throat. Also through the nefesh, often translated as soul. It'd be helpful to know that. Anytime you're reading your English Bible and you see the word soul, it's almost in the Hebrew portion, the Old Testament, it's almost always nefesh. That is the eating and fleshed needy self. Yeah, and so you mentioned Leviathan, mm. but even prior to that, you have the lion, mm-hmm. right? Yes. As among among all the beasts, yes, roaring for their prey. I mean, again, a terrifying image, but in the context, it's this is simply presented as food is provided. You know, yeah. you know, it's not even the lion who seems to go and get their food out of their own power is even still just is one more pet that's being fed by God, right? They're just as reliant on God as any other creature is. Yeah. And so then the grass and plants of verse 14, Mm -hmm. right? Even these are, you know, being, yeah, they're being taken care of by the human who cultivates them. But even this is is just the food that God is providing, right? So the, the, there's all these food sources. It's interesting to see how much you know food and drink is being explicitly referenced the moment we have any living beings. Because when's when's yeah. the first living being? I think it's probably in verse. Is that verse ten? I think so. Verse ten, and it's the water that is being provided for every animal. And I think this this has to do with yeah, so even before. Right, even before the animals are referenced, they're right. being supplied with a drink. They're being supplied yeah. with what they need. And this is part of turning creation from something that's desolate and kind of inimical to life to something that's abundant and provides for life. 
water is before that place, something that's covering the mountains, needs to be rebuked so that it flees, but it's transformed through God's creative activity into something that sustains life. This is kind of the catch-22 of water, is that it's both a tool of destruction and of sustenance. You both need it and it can kill you. And so that's the turning point between verse 9 and 10. You set a boundary so it cannot cross. It's not going to destroy you. It's never going to cover the earth. That is a reference to the flood. Instead, you put gushing springs into dry riverbeds. They flow between the mountains, providing water for every wild animal. So it's turned into a life-giving power through God's work. We also get the beautiful note. I love verse 15, which highlights the pleasure that God provides in creation. Sometimes we have this very dull view of God, like God will give you what you need, but not what you want. Like you, yeah, you tell bare us, minimum. have you yeah. not heard that before, right? So you're like, oh shoot, you're praying for something. You're like, uh-oh, this is something I want, not that I need. So God's not going to give it to me. But there are these great moments in this psalm which say, okay, he gives what we need. God gives what we need, food and water, but also wine, which cheers people's hearts. So you can't even read this thinking that, well, you know, in the ancient world, they drank lots of wine. It's like, no, this person is highlighting the like joy giving aspects of wine. It not only gives you water, it for some people makes you kind of happy <laughs> and oil. And then the oil on top of that. Positive that's right. Oil, right. These are, these are not, these are things that aren't even necessary for life, but they're aspects of our lived pleasure in the world. And then the line, of course, for Leviathan plays. God gives the water for Leviathan to play in. So it's not just human pleasure. The world is created for our sustenance, for the purpose of life, but also for the sheer purpose of useless pleasure. That's wonderful. Oh man, that's so that's so beautiful. And and also helpful when in the church year a psalm like this gets located again wisely in this context of Pentecost, allowing that to be a kind of intertextual connection rather than a narrowing, you know, because it can be easily a kind of narrowing as if, okay, the spirit has this kind of like, everything's on purpose. It's only equipping for an activity of prophetic speech, you know? Well, yeah, sure. But also it's just for fun too. Right, like <laughs> there's also just the the playfulness of of this created order. It challenges are really narrow. This has, and actually, this semester, this has been challenged for me. I'm speaking as someone still learning this truth and struggling with how to articulate it. The fact that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a renewal of an activity, but it wasn't as though the Spirit was gone. The Spirit of God is what continues to create life on Earth, which means that the Holy Spirit is both doing a particular work in God's people, the particular work of bringing about the kingdom of God and the particular work of prophetic speech that we're called to do. But the Holy Spirit is also that's what, that which is animating all of creation. And this has really changed the way that I look at the created order, the way that I look at animals. How does it change? This is going to sound, depending on what Christian stories you come from, this is going to sound kind of crazy. But what does it change us to know that God's spirit fills animals? That's orthodoxy, according to the Old Testament. And I don't think I'd ever thought about it in that way before. Again, I'm not saying that animals are capable of prophetic speech, just because they're filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean the Spirit's doing particular work in them. But the fact that all life is a sign of God's presence is a really comforting thing to believe. There's at least one time uh, an animal does engage in prophetic speech. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So perhaps, 
Perhaps uh, Balaam's ass is an important uh, <laughs> yes. thing to remember. A good Pentecost sermon. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> let's tuck that away. Let's uh, let's put a pin in Balaam for a moment and take a quick break, and then come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we've been looking at Psalm 104, the whole psalm, but especially uh, 24 to the end of the psalm as a psalm for Pentecost Sunday. Of course, this psalm could be preached or uh, taught upon at any time, but that just happens to be when we're looking at it uh, right now. So yeah, Aubrey, if you were uh, preaching or teaching on this psalm in a context of worship and Christian community, what what might be kind of your your angle? Obviously, we've already touched on a whole bunch of stuff, but you know, where where would your focus of your energies probably be on? You think? A couple directions to go. The first thing that I thought of immediately as I was reading this psalm um, is how it challenges the concept of moral therapeutic deism. I don't know if this is a concept that comes up a lot in your work. That's I, Christian Smith's book. It's old at this point. Two thousand, early two thousands, two thousand five. I think, but it is just as relevant today as it was back when it was written, this idea that God definitely created the world. It's not a denial of the supernatural. And we're definitely going to heaven when we die. But in the middle, our job is kind of just to be good people. And if we do good things, we'll be happy. And God's not really involved in a discernible way in our day-to-day activity. God might reach out on occasion to like smite (laughs) or, or redirect. It's not that God can't intervene, but that God generally won't. And this psalm denies that with an exclamation point to come back to something we said at the beginning. This psalm implies that if God were to remove God's attention for a moment, everyone would drop dead. Everyone would drop dead. Kind of like the toys in Toy Story when a kid walks into the room, like everyone would just Oh, that's over. perfect. That's a perfect um, parable of it. Yeah. And so it, it declares in as strong a language as possible, that God is intimately involved at every moment with the care of creation, both humans, non-human, the very ground, the very dirt is renewed by the energy of God's spirit. And so if that, if, if your particular congregation wrestles with that concept of moral therapeutic deism, the Psalm confronts that really strongly. Yeah, I've been wanting to do, and who knows, maybe we can just do it real quick right now, but I've been wanting to kind of workshop like a contrast term for, you know, like what, what do I replace the word moral with (laughs) and what do I replace the word therapeutic and nothing wrong with morals or therapy, right? Right, It's just, the problem is the reductionism, right? Reducing things to only that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Um, because according to this Psalm creation, God's creative activity can be for pleasure. This is not to say it will always be work out for your pleasure, but it can be. Um, God is certainly there. What a great question. Well, we'll think about it. We'll think about it. Yeah. Something like instead of moral therapeutic deism, it'd be something along the lines of like holistic covenantal theism or something like that. I mean, that's not the right term, but something in that vicinity. And something with life in it, like uh, animating, life-sustaining even theism sounds because it has still to be present. Too, be present. Yeah, so. that's still too abstract. Yeah, I like that it's the face. I, I, I'm really jazzed about the face and breath of God as at the center of this 
song. And this is why it isn't pantheism. It's not an inanimate kind of life force. We like to talk about and give different kind of names to a life force that we view in creation, but this is presented in very personal terms. Those key lines begin with the face, the face of someone who can look at you relationally. And so the the relationship, the life, and the spirit are all intimately connected. Uh, And that's good news. And I think to play on this concept of therapy, I think the therapies that are popular now are recognizing this, the, the idea that we need to be not just, we don't need just to feel good, but we need to be in relationship with other beings in order to be fulfilled in our humanity. I think there's a real place for the Christian message to be spoken into that reality, especially as we've our issues of loneliness were just recently exacerbated by everything that's happened in the past two years. And the Christian message of Pentecost is one of the most obvious moments in which God's presence animates the world in really obvious ways. Yeah, and in a very face-to-face way. It's it's occurring to me how much that term that we've taken for granted has come to be so that's a striking phrase. You know, you'll even ask when you set up a meeting, like, is this is this over Zoom or is this quote face to face? Yes. Which is funny because like you and I are on Zoom right now and literally we're looking at each other's faces. Yeah. But we wouldn't call this face to face. Right. Right. Even right. though there's your face and here's my face, but it's it's a mediated image in a way that Yes. Because there isn't that breath that's being shared, you right. know. It isn't face-to-face, properly yes, speaking. That's right. That's right. Because our, our spirit isn't being shared. When we use the term in person, I think that's powerful too. Like, are we meeting as people? <laughs> or yeah. as, as people? Am I not a person when I log in? <laughs> yes. And, and interestingly enough, persona, a Latin term, which can also be translated face. So, I mean, that, oh, yes. that the language of personhood is linked to face or mask in its Latin origin. So, I mean, th- those, those associations are not exclusive to Hebrew. So yeah. Hmm. And prosopon in Greek, same issue. So I, there is something to that and it's already, it's even there in our own English language that, yeah, that to be in person, to be face to face is something more than merely the image of a face or individuality in the sense of personhood has something to do with embodied connection with one another. And it's not irrelevant that the story of Pentecost, you know, is not this kind of private event, though right. it starts with this 120 in a room. Yeah. It spills out into the public space. Yeah. Face to face with people gathered from all over, you know, from all over creation. And enables relationship. One of the things that separates humans from one another are different languages. And so the spirit of God, the life-giving relational spirit of God, then both gives life and also enables relating one person to another, not blocked by language or ethnicity or all of the other walls that that Christianity breaks down. Yeah. And it just, it just occurred to me how just more resonances here between 104 and the Pentecost story, how immediately the taking care of each other's needs, yeah, the, fe- the feeding right. of the widow and the orphan right. sort of is immediate, not as a kind of 
oh, well, you got saved, but let's also yes. do these good works. Um, it's just it's just integral to the story right there by the end of chapter two. Yeah. There's a having things in common, a, yeah. feed, a feeding of one another that can be seen as a, a foretaste of a renewal of all creation because feeding is what God's doing from the beginning. Absolutely. So it's an extension of God's character, which is not unexpected since we're filled with God's spirit, but it's also a recognition of abundance. Generosity stems from this sense that you have all you need and therefore you don't have to fear um, when you, when you give, when you give greatly, when you give richly. Um, I also think that this Psalm pairs so beautifully with Pentecost because one of the difficulties of the Pentecost narrative uh, a question that I have after I read it and that people I've talked to have after they read it is, well, why isn't God doing this now? <laughs> why do, why do I have to take five semesters of Spanish just to be able to say, you know, where's, where's the bathroom? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, this idea that God worked powerfully at one point in time, but no longer works in this way. I mean, this is an active conversation in some theological traditions. I tend to disagree. People say, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in that way anymore. That's how God once worked. And Psalm 104 challenges that by encouraging us to see the miraculous work of God's Holy Spirit all around us. When I breathe in and out, that can be a reminder of Pentecost. When I look at this plant that I think will continue to live in my office, I hope that that plant is living by the Spirit of God. And so it just, it gives us hope that God, the Holy Spirit of God continues to be with us, even as flames don't fall from the sky, even as we still struggle with language barriers with one another, even when some of the aspects that we tend to view as miraculous, miraculous healings, the more unexpected gifts of the spirit don't appear to be manifest in our personal lives or in our communities, that God's Holy Spirit is still present. God's relational face is still shining upon us, even without heavenly tongues of flame. Yeah, it just occurred to me, there's nothing in Psalm 104, except maybe, depending on how it's interpreted, except maybe verse 32 in terms of the mountains smoking and all that jazz, right. which right. may have some allusion to Exodus. But other than that, like none of these are kind of like miracles in the sense of divine intervention. They're the, the continuous miracle of divine activity of sustaining and animating the world, right? Absolutely. It's not outside of the created order. It is, it, it, I would call it divine intervention, but this psalm implies that God is always intervening to maintain the created order. There's no there disruption. Sure. There's no disruption in God's created order in Psalm 104. It is all of the things that we tend to take for granted. How about this? It's intervening, but not contravening, right? It's not, it's I love not. That. I love yeah. that. That preaches. There's a line. There's a line. Yeah, I was going to explain it, but then you complimented it. I'm like, well, let's just leave it then. You loved it. So like, that's enough. <laughs> Let it stand. It's good you enough. Don't let some lines sit and sink in. And then you can well, explain it. You can explain but the it. modern the modern notion of a miracle, which is not the classical definition of a miracle, Augustine, Aquinas, they wouldn't refer to a, a miracle as a God breaking the laws of nature. That's a, that's a more modern definition right. of a miracle, which I'm also – open to affirming as well, but it's not, that's not what's being discussed here in this Psalm. And you don't actually need that, that contravening of the natural order to see God, God coming among, right? If intervening is to come in the midst of, right? Yeah. To intervene, vini, to come, 
that God is actively coming into creation again and again. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Even when you think of miracles, I'm going through the what we would consider miracles most commonly in the Old and New Testaments. All of them are extension of God's creative activity. It's just what God normally does on steroids. So splitting the sea, that's boundary marking in the waters, providing food from heaven. That's what's being described in Psalm 104. When Jesus heals the sick, that's a renewal of life. That's a restoration of God's animating force in your body of the feeding of the 5,000. That's God providing and sustaining just on an overabundant level. All of these things aren't unexpected from God. They're what God is doing all the time just concentrated in a particular moment. Creation on steroids. That's funny. Creation on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, even, even this kind of ultimate miracle of resurrection that is sort of beyond the expectation from one point of view. Yes. Is at the same time, restoration, fulfillment, extension. God's divine spirit filling flesh. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really exciting. I kind of want to, preach this sermon on Pentecost now, (laughs) Uh, except not the moment I think about it. I'm like, that's, that actually makes me really nervous. I really like it. I'd rather help other people with their prep and just move on, which is why I do this podcast. So thank you so much, Aubrey, for giving some time to our listeners. We appreciate it a ton. I'm sure there's a lot who've been listening, who have been edified themselves and, and some who are going to use some of these ideas uh, Mm -hmm. to develop their own their own teaching and preaching for others. So thank you so much. Appreciate the time you're giving. Yeah. 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 And if someone comes up for that alternate term for moral therapeutic deism, maybe they can email you. Yeah, no, it'd be great. That'd be great. Crowdsource that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. You can just at me on Twitter. I'm John L. Drury. That'd probably be the best place to put it. And I'll make sure to make sure Aubrey sees it too and runs with it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much to Todd and Eric, as always, for your production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all the supporters of the show out there, especially our patron saints. If you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support the show. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>